Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's pod, John Fetterman debates Dr. Oz. Democrats start to panic because what else is new? Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto joins to talk about her race. Oregon gubernatorial candidate Tina Kotek joins to talk about her race. And then comedian Mike Birbiglia joins to talk about his new Broadway show, The Old Man in the Pool, and what it's like to star in a Taylor Swift video. This is It's a great interview. It's a great interview. So just stick around for the end for some fun. But first, check out Crooked Media's newest podcast, Work Appropriate, hosted by author and journalist Anne Helen Peterson. If you've ever messaged a friend about a manager who won't stop texting after hours or a coworker who keeps posting weirdly suggestive Austin Powers gifts in Slack, <laughs> you're not alone. On this pod, Anne sets out to find solutions to these oddly specific yet completely universal Listener submitted questions. Whether you work in an office chair or a sixth grade classroom, the problems may be limitless, but so are the solutions. Listen to the first episode of Work Appropriate now, wherever you get your podcasts. And Helen Peterson is fantastic. It's a great uh, podcast. Definitely go check it out. Definitely go check it out. Um, all right, let's get to the news. The only debate in one of the country's most important Senate races took place in Pennsylvania on Tuesday between John Fetterman, who's still recovering from a stroke, and Dr. Oz, who will never recover from being a pee-drinking, puppy-killing, quack-TV doctor from New Jersey with 10 houses. Fetterman has been open about a lingering issue where he still has some trouble hearing and sometimes expressing his thoughts clearly, and those challenges were plainly evident during the debate, uh, which caused a lot of pundits and Democrats to uh, freak the fuck out. Uh, As for Oz... He lied a lot, repeatedly refused to say whether he supports a national abortion ban, and instead said he wants the decision made by, quote, women, doctors, and local political leaders. Uh, Dan, let's start with Fetterman. So there were a lot of people on Twitter and in the media predicting with great certainty how his debate performance would impact the race. Spoiler, no one really thought it would help. Uh, What did you think? (laughs) <laughs> I gotta take a deep breath because I have a lot. Deep breath. I have a lot of thoughts on this. A lot, and I will try to self-edit here for this since we have three interviews on this podcast. Okay. Are you asking me whether a man who suffered a stroke five months ago did not do as well in a debate as a practiced television pundit with thirty years of honing his craft on TV? Yeah, yeah. that happened. Could it hurt him in this race? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But one of the problems with how this was covered is it was all about optics. It did not state the most important thing, the thing we have to say, the thing the press should have said, which is people who have strokes have a recovery process. During that recovery process, they often have challenges with auditory processing, as John Fetterman would say, hearing things, saying things, getting your words out. There is no suggestion that he's not going to get better, and there's absolutely no suggestion that he is in any way impaired other than the words coming out of his mouth, that there's any sort of mental impairment, that he can't do the job. But no one said that. That was not how it was covered. All the Instead of taking that piece of information that a lot of voters don't know, most voters don't know about the stroke recovery process. They don't understand how it works. They don't know about auditory processing. So the people whose job it is to inform the voters when covering this debate did not do that. Instead, they decided to predict what the people who didn't have the information would think if they never gave them the information. That is an abdication of duty. It was disgusting. It was offensive. It was absolutely a disservice. The coverage was terrible. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. And when you say the coverage, it like I think the the pundit reaction on Twitter was was particularly uh terrible. 
digging in just to prepare for this pod as you got into some of the articles about it, um, you know, it was better. Uh, Slate interviewed uh, a bunch of doctors about this. The New York Times interviewed a couple doctors about this as well. And of course, as you just said, all of the doctors said, yeah, there's nothing wrong with his cognitive ability, with his ability to think his mind is as sharp as ever. It is purely an issue of hearing and getting the words out, um, which is very typical. And all of these doctors said it looks like he's recovering well. A lot of them thought he actually did pretty good in the debate, considering how long ago the stroke was and how long the recovery process usually lasts. And yeah, it was um, he's going to have trouble hearing and speaking. But like there's no his mind is as sharp as ever, which is something that we both uh, noticed when we interviewed him on this podcast. Yeah, he he sat down with Kara Swisher, the toughest interviewer in journalism, right right around the time he talked to us. He there is yeah. no this idea, the impression that was left in this coverage, and there is a distinction between the people who wrote thoughtful articles about it. There are the people who cover the race every day, and a bunch of fucking yahoos sitting in their apartment in D.C. <laughs> who have not been to Pennsylvania, have not talked to John Fetterman, have no capacity to know what the voters of Pennsylvania may or may not think about this. And that is, that is true. But this, they left the impression that there's a possibility that John Fetterman cannot do the job. And that is fucking insane. It is not true. There is no evidence of that. There is a mountain of evidence that he can. It is absurd. It is absolutely absurd. And then some of it, they defend it. Like, well, how's he going to do floor debates in the Senate while he recovers? Floor debates in the Senate? What the fuck are you talking about? Is he going <laughs> to lose a cloture motion a Tommy Tuberville? A fucking piece of AstroTurf representing a Republican Senate seat? Like, what the fuck? It is so... Stupid. These people have never, it just, it is the worst elements of political journalism manifested themselves in this all the way. Think about it this way, right? Try to explain this to people in ways that they would understand. Let's hypothetically say someone breaks their leg. And then a few months after breaking their leg, they have to run in a foot race against a trained runner. And they're, and then they don't do well. Are they going to, are they in the process of recovering from that broken leg? Yes. Are they going to be faster next week? Yes. Are they going to be better, completely better a year from now? Yes. There is no worse format in the entire world for someone dealing with the issues that John Fetterman is dealing with, like so many people who have suffered from strokes, than a televised, soundbite-driven debate. Like, of course he did not do great here. Of course he didn't. It's impossible to do great there. But the, the right. So the issue, I think, goes even beyond the media, though it is, as you uh, correctly point out, their responsibility and obligation to actually report what happened and not to predict, right? Are you about to turn uh, to the voters for a second here? Yeah, I am about okay, to turn Okay, can I say voters. one more thing? Just one yeah. more thing? <laughs> you know what would have been fucking useful for the people covering it? To focus on what John Fetterman said, not how he said it, because we know that he's going to be able to say it more clearly next year in the Senate. What about that? Yeah. It's not yeah. fucking figure skating contest. But it is, but it was what this is what I'm getting at. It is a figure skating contest, and we have talked about that so many times before. Like we talk about optics, debates are the fucking optics Olympics. We have hated them forever, even before our boss almost uh, lost the 2012 reelect because of how poorly he did in his first debate <laughs> against Mitt Romney during that campaign. He has never liked debates. We never liked them during the primary in 2007. They are a fucking joke. They are the worst way to fucking pick candidates. And yet we have them and they're a thing. And so we all have to deal with them. And like, let's be honest. Of course, it was difficult to watch John Fetterman in that debate. But then you have to ask yourself, why? Why was it difficult? Well, the most honest reaction, the first reaction, the reaction I hope most people have had, the reaction I certainly had, was because it is difficult to watch another human being struggle to communicate effectively when you know that they've had a medical incident that causes it, right? That's just like a natural, hopefully, human reaction that most people have. But then the second reaction that I think a lot of people had, a lot of Fetterman supporters had, is, oh, no. And it wasn't, oh, no, do I still think he should be senator? It was, oh, no. Do a majority of Pennsylvanians still think he should be senator? Because we are all pundits now. <laughs> this is the problem. And like, I mean, we the, literally the, are pundits. We literally are pundits, but I'm saying everyone yes, listening yes, is no, acting like a pundit as well. Because like the New York Times went out and interviewed a bunch of voters about this. And there wasn't one Fetterman supporter or someone who was on the fence who said, oh, you know what? I was a Fetterman supporter and then I saw the debate and now I changed my mind. But there were plenty of Fetterman supporters who said, 
it was tough to watch and I'm just worried what other people will think. I'm I'm worried that this will hurt him. And people start doing all their punditry. And like, I get that. But as you said, we are all guessing. We are just all guessing. We don't know the answer. What we do know is that John Fetterman's doctor released a letter saying he has no restrictions uh, on what he can do. He is completely fit to be senator. All these other independent medical experts said this is completely normal. We know that. And we know that Dr. Oz is a phony asshole whose campaign has like relentlessly mocked John Fetterman for several months for having a stroke, which is completely on brand for Dr. Oz because he is a fucking guy who's gotten rich off other people's suffering. This is a guy who like... Uh, a bunch of colleagues, medical doctors at Columbia University tried to get him fired in 2015 from Columbia University because they said that he um, has disdain for science and evidence-based medicine because all he does is go on TV and promote fucking quack remedies that don't actually work so he can get rich and other people don't actually get healthy. That's who Dr. Oz is, and that's why he fucking mocked John Fetterman for having a stroke for the last couple months. So it's like, do you want the guy who's gotten rich off other people's suffering, or do you want the guy who has been suffering because he had a stroke, which millions of Americans have had, but is otherwise completely healthy and like mentally alert and ready to do this job and actually fight for the people of Pennsylvania. Like, and so when you're worried about like what it's going to mean for John Fetterman, like fucking pick up a phone, talk to some voters, knock on some doors in Pennsylvania and just tell that to people, tell the people the real difference between the two candidates. Oh my God. I'm so worked up about this. I'm so <laughs> mad about it. And so I'll tell mad. you. And I'm just, I want to, I'm just, I'm mad at the, at the media like you are, but like, you know what? Fucking, all of these stories had Democrats in Pennsylvania. There were some Democratic strategists who put their name on the quote. There were many of them, of course, who were just fucking cowards who gave anonymous quotes who were like, this was bad. I can't believe this. If you're a fucking Democrat and you were talking to a reporter, your Democratic strategist, and you're talking to a reporter about why you are freaked out about John Fetterman's debate performance – what is that going to do? Is that going to make any fucking difference? Is that going to help Democrats at all? Or is that just going to make you feel fucking important because you talked to a fucking reporter? There's an NBC News story. Every single fucking Democrat in that story should feel ashamed of themselves. A fucking ashamed of themselves. Chris Kofinas, all of them. They were, they were fucking, that was fucking <laughs> just, ridiculous. Just, Ed Rendell's out there again, of course. Oh, all, like, sh- Ed Rendell had thoughts off, on something? What? Oh, great. Now you, your relationship with the reporters are great. Yeah, you, you, had, you saw your name in print. Congratulations fucking assholes <laughs> i we've said it before give me a new party i, give me I a, will I will say it again clean them out one of our party's greatest failings over the last many years is our inability to develop an inner monologue you know what you're nervous about it i'm nervous about it you and i do i text you republicans don't do this shit <sighs> unbelievable just, what's like i just don't call up your reporter friends i did gonna see them at fucking cafe milano later so i gotta be tight with them you know i gotta give them an anonymous quote because then they'll call me and then I'll feel more important. Good for you. Good for you. <sighs> You're really moving the ball forward. Some Democrats said that Fetterman just sh- should have refused to debate. Like, do you think that was a viable option? I do not. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I don't pretend to know John Fetterman particularly well. But what I do know about him suggests there's not a chance he was going to do that. That's just not doesn't seem yeah. to be in his DNA. And his campaign has run what I think to date has been the best campaign of the cycle. They have been ahead of the curve. They have been smart. Yes, this race is close now, but the fact that it is close in a tough Democratic year with a candidate who missed months on the trail because they suffered a stroke on the day they won the nomination is pretty impressive. And so they have a reason they chose us. And it's easy to be one of these fucking Twitter strategists that you just talk about, even, even though you mentioned actual real Democratic strategists who talk too much. Let's talk about the people who can who pretend to have all the fucking answers who have never thought that maybe they should take that omniscient knowledge about politics and apply it to actually working in the fucking business and saving the party instead of just tweeting about it. Like, what about those people? <laughs> it's like, I know ever I know everything that's going to happen in sports gambling, but I won't place a bet anywhere. Um, obviously, this very good campaign had looked at this question. I bet they even asked voters about it. Maybe they used data and they made a decision. There's no good option here. I think they chose the best of two bad options and did the best they absolutely could. And the question isn't what happened. It's what's it was what's going to happen next. How do they – I don't even want to say like bounce back from success at the right term. How do they close this campaign out on offense, not on defense? Because of the way this played out, at least in the 24, 36 hours afterwards, is they were on the defensive. And so where do we go from here? Yeah. 
I mean, there's a lot of, uh, why did his strategist let him do this? Like, you're right. Uh, John Fetterman is a pretty strong-willed guy. Uh, did anyone think of the fact that maybe just John Fetterman wanted to do this? <laughs> and that he wanted to do this because his entire brand has been like, sort of like the no-nonsense, authentic candidate. Like, wh- what would it have looked like if he said, no, I don't want to debate, right? It is, again, counterfactuals are easy now. <laughs> but... I can very easily imagine a complete freakout over John Fetterman saying, I do not want to debate Dr. Oz because I am not fully recovered from my stroke and I'm not going to be able to effectively communicate. Like you can you can just see that freak out now. You can hear it. <laughs> so it's like it's just impossible to do the counterfactual at this point. And I'm sure they thought that maybe his recovery would be further along than it is at this point when they agreed to the debate. Like you just don't know. You don't know. Um, so let's talk about Dr. Oz's most memorable moment. Uh, here is a clip of that abortion answer. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. So Democrats trying to make that Oz moment matter more than Fetterman's debate performance. Uh, You think that's possible? And how do they do it? Let's just for one second, just dwell on what he said. Yeah. Essentially what he's saying is, you're on the phone with your doctor making a very personal medical decision and you have to conference in the county assessor. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> like that, like that is like in a world, let's say that there was no questions about John Fetterman's debate performance. That would be the biggest gaffe committed by a candidate in a debate in years. Years. The abortion is a central issue in the campaign. Dr. Oz has spent months trying to fuzz up his position, to bounce back from these extreme positions he took in the primary, to try to make himself not seem like the extremist he is. And then he says on a debate stage that he thinks local political officials, not local health officials, not local government officials, which are all offensive and terrible, local political officials should be involved in the decision. You, your doctor, the alderman, like what? It just like that's a huge deal. Can they make that matter more than the debate performance? I don't know. Maybe not. But we have to. You have to think about it, is that there is X amount of conversation about the debate, and if the campaign can make it be fifty fifty or sixty forty debate performance as a compared to Dr. Oz's abortion statement, then that's good. Like fuzz it up, get it out there, be aggressive about it. Every little bit of conversation about what he said about abortion is going to help both maybe convince some voters who are still deciding what they're going to do or feel cross pressured in a number of ways between just angry at Democrats generally, not John Fetterman specifically, and concerns about Republican extremism or concerns about Republican extremism compared to concerns as as, um, ill-founded as I think they are about John Fetterman's performance. That could matter. And so you got to do it. And I think it was smart. They put an ad out the morning after the debate to try to push this issue. Also, if you look at Pennsylvania state media and local media, they did cover, I think, Oz's abortion moment more than they did Fetterman's debate performance because, you know, local and state media, is, uh, they don't have a pundit brain as much as like national media does. Well, they, do you, are you saying they talk to voters in the state? <laughs> yeah, right. well, but also like they, they like report sort of straight news stories where they just talk about what happened and they don't start yeah. talking about, they don't like make pundit predictions in the middle of their copy, you know, as much. So, so that, that happened. Look, I think, this is the thing with Dr. Oz's answer there. Like, yeah, this is the guy who said abortion is murder, right? So it's like it's not necessarily surprising. What he was trying to do is basically say, like, yeah, he knows how unpopular a national ban is, but he's totally fine with state bans and local ban, right? He's totally fine with with state politicians and local politicians banning abortion. He just knows that for some reason a national ban is is unpopular, so he wants to dance around that and not give us an answer. The guy is fuck like this Dr. Oz is such a phony. He is such a fraud. Like this is why the, the this is why the New Jersey thing, I'm sure like after this race I'm gonna be like, should they have focused so much on New Jersey or the or Wegmans or the fucking houses and stuff like that? Dr. Oz is a phony sociopath. He will do and say anything to win, to make money, to do whatever. He he he's he's going he's a Trump supporter. This guy is a Trump supporter. Maybe was pro-choice at some point, now is pro-life, says abortions murder, says he wants local politicians to be able to ban abortion wherever they want. I mean, the guy is all fucking over the place. And I do think that like if you if you if you need a message about Dr. Oz in closing, you sort of need to get at the core of who he is, right? It's not just about one issue. 
Uh, it's about just like who this guy is. Can you trust him? And uh, clearly for like everything he's done from killing puppies to his abortion <laughs> answer, I don't think you can. I don't think you can. Um, Trump super PAC just spent $800,000 um, on this ad about Fetterman. Joe Biden and John Fetterman aren't up to these challenges. Biden is stumbling around, and Fetterman just isn't right. Our economy is coming south. The Eagles are so much better than the Eagles. Biden and Fetterman, liberal, clueless, weak. Make America great again, Inc. is responsible for the content of this advertising. Uh, the same, the voice and the music, always the same. Um, what do you think about that line of attack and how should, uh, how do you think Fetterman should respond both to that ad and just in general in these final two weeks? What's his, what's his closing message? I'm so glad that noted sophist and famed order Donald Trump is here to police people speaking. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I, I think Fetterman should welcome this ad. He should welcome Donald Trump in this race. It cannot hurt to remind people that Dr. Oz is a Trump toady. He is only running for this seat because Donald Trump asked him to. He only won the primary because Donald Trump endorsed him. Just highlight that fact. That is good. That is important. I think I'm going to give you a preview. Trump, Trump's doing a rally in Latrobe November 5th in the final weekend. Next weekend, Trump's doing a rally. I'm I'm, I'm assuming Dr. Oz shows up, but who knows? Maybe it's just Mastriano. Dr. Oz has to show up if he doesn't. Trump will tweet about him or truth. Sorry. I know. Sorry. Truth about him. I don't know when Donald Trump's getting back on Twitter. Maybe it'll be by Friday. I don't know. <laughs> Could be right now, yeah. But um, that, no, that's how he's. That's how they're going to close out the close out the campaign. Images of uh, Donald Trump and Dr. Oz together. There you go. So, from the perspective of the Fetterman campaign, I think it is a couple of things. First, I would highlight Trump's role in this. I think in this ad, in this rally, I think that's great. Second is do everything you can to draw attention to the abortion comment. I think, as I said, that sort of dilutes some of the negative energy that has come out of this and the sort of the political conversation about it. And then third, and this is a decision only he can make and his campaign can make because they know how he's doing the best. But the I'm a, I think the only way around is through. And that is, as we know from when we talked to him, we talked to Kara Swisher, the debate is a particularly bad format. So we yeah. you want people to hear from all the time. There was a, he had to do a rally the next day in front of several thousand people. He sounded much better in the rally than he did at the debate. Do interviews if they're the right format. Do rallies. Put in your final ads, I think, John Fetterman to camera speaking so that people mm. can hear that. Just show them, give them content, something else. People want to support John Fetterman. They like John Fetterman. You know this from the wilderness. They yeah. do not like Dr. Oz. Give them a permission to support the guy they want to support by showing them where he truly is, showing them something different than this debate, explaining it to him. And so I think that's ultimately the final uh, sort of steps here for this campaign in the last moments of this race. Yeah. In fact, the voters that I spoke to in that Pittsburgh focus group said, you know, sometimes he doesn't say everything correctly. Sometimes he doesn't, you know, but, but I still just, I just trust him. I just believe him. And I, and I think that you've got to, uh, you got to show people that, right? That's that's why people fell in love with them in the first place. Um, okay, so Tuesday's debate uh, was just the uh, cherry on top of a shit Sunday of polls and uh, and blind quotes and stories that have Democrats in a state of panic, which is the party's second favorite state after uh, after self loathing. <laughs> Um, so there was a New York Times report this week that Democrats have mostly given up on contesting Trump districts and are instead focused on holding districts that Biden won, uh, some that he won by double digits. Sean McElwee, our friend who runs the progressive polling firm Data for Progress, said, quote, we thought for a little bit that we could defy gravity, but the reality is setting in. And not to put too fine of a point on it, but in the final weeks of this midterm, Joe Biden will be campaigning in the battleground state of New York. <laughs> Uh, Dan, what is going on here? What is going on? Maybe the bottom is falling out, John. Maybe it's not. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the we polls show Democrats losing. All right. Maybe they're wrong. The question I would have for everyone is, what is any of this going to do to change your plan for the next 10 days? Mm. Are you going to... Make fewer phone calls because Democrats are losing. You're going to make more. You're going to give us money. It doesn't matter. We are we are at the stage of the can at this stage in campaigns. You know what happens? The campaign manager goes to the communications office, the people who make the ads, and they say, "Give me your staff. They're going to go knock fucking doors." This we're all that's left. All that's left here is turning 
out in persuading voters. That's all there is. It doesn't matter what some guy named Nate says. It doesn't matter what the polling average says. It doesn't matter the needle. None of that. It is That's all there is to it. And there's just this thing that I, I we try to remind people all the time on this podcast is there is a pro-truth, pro-democracy, anti-MAGA majority in this country and in all the states that are going to decide the Senate and the key governors races. These are states Joe Biden won. If that coalition that defeated Trump in 18 and 20 turns out on November 8th, we're going to win. And if they don't, we're going to lose. And nothing that happens on Twitter or cable or is going to affect that. And that that calculus remains the same. And I will just offer some context about the larger political environment, because I do think if you're out there thinking like, what does it matter at this point? The bottom's falling out. I, you know, these polls are horrible. What 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 difference can I make? Um, you should know that. Look, I mean, at the beginning of 2020, there's a lot of political scientists, political strategists who looked at the fundamentals in that race and said, like, this is going to be close. And then a million things happened that seemed to tilt the race towards Joe Biden. Donald Trump had fucking COVID. <laughs> Like a lot happened in 2020. And then there were these like polls at the end of that race with these huge Biden leads and everyone was all getting all excited. And it ended up being a really close race, just as the fundamentals suggested. Right. So like this time, the fundamentals suggest a pretty tough environment for Democrats for two reasons. One, because the president's party almost always loses seats in the first midterm, almost always, usually a significant number of seats. And On top of that, inflation is really high. That said, the reason it might not be a full wipeout, the reason it's still close in a lot of these races right now is because of a couple things. One, polarization. Like, it's just, there's Democrats vote for Democrats, Republicans vote for Republicans, independents usually lean one way or the other and have similar voting patterns. Um, Gerrymandering in the House has actually limited, you know, it's it's bad for a million reasons, but the, the upside is it's actually limited a lot of um, competitive seats. So there's like a lot of Democrats in safer seats because of the way that uh, the map was drawn. There's also a lot of Republicans in safer seats. So just the terrain is smaller in the House. So the losses could be stemmed that way. And of course, potentially because of Dobbs and Republican extremism. That is that is different. So like all of those factors together, yeah, the fundamentals are just a very shitty political environment for Democrats no matter what happened in 2022. But there are a bunch of things working in our favor that make this race close, that make all of these races Within uh, and I now I've heard this a couple times over the last few weeks from our team and from some other people. Um, these aren't margin of error races; they're margin of effort races. <laughs> I, I kind of like it's that. It's the first I mean, time. Th- yeah, I don't know where it came from, but it just starts. It started popping up in a couple places. Everyone said it's margin of effort, meaning these races will be decided based on what you all do, what we all do. <laughs> I think that that's an important point on the polls. Um, it's just. They are not supposed to predict what's going to happen. That's not what they do. They were never supposed to do that. They were even in an era when they were not possibly fundamentally broken. They were imprecise. And that up to and down to is the same thing in most polls. And so we just don't know. They're also usually snapshots of what was going on two weeks earlier, not what's happening now or what's going to happen in the future. Right. So you're always looking in the rearview mirror when you're looking at a poll. So the polls that are coming out today, maybe they tell you with relative accuracy what happened last week or so, but it's yes. hard to tell what's happening now or what's happening later. I'll still look at them. Sometimes um, it's sometimes what you see in the mirror is the T-Rex from Jurassic Park, and sometimes not. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's something you can do. We've talked a lot on this show about the Senate. Uh, everyone has donated generously to the Senate Fund. It helped all these Democratic Senate candidates. I want to talk about the House. Um the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the uh, Kevin McCarthy super PAC, just dumped another $11 million into House races uh, with less than two weeks to go. So a lot of House races could use more money. Uh, some of them could use your time uh, to help mobilize voters who might otherwise sit this one out. Again, all voters are a persuasion target at this point, whether they're thinking about uh, voting for Republicans or thinking about not voting at all. You have to persuade people, right? So you go to votesaveamerica.com, sign up to help knock on doors or make calls or send texts. But also we have updated our house fund to reflect the races where your donation can have the most impact right now. Um, So we have a list of house races where, again, we talked to all the people in these races, talked to other strategists, sort of like ran the numbers. And these are the races where uh, you'll have the most bang for your buck where your dollars can go the furthest and actually really help some of these candidates. So go to votesaveamerica.com, uh, donate to the House Fund, and sign up for some 
volunteer shifts. Okay, when we come back, Dan interviews Senator Catherine Cortez Masto about her close race in Nevada. And after that, you'll hear an interview that Tommy did with Oregon gubernatorial candidate Tina Kotek. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Joining us now is the Nevada senator up for re-election in just a few weeks and the first Latina senator ever elected, Catherine Cortez Masto. Welcome back to Pod Save America. Oh, Dan, it's great to talk with you. It's always great to join you on, on the pod. It's great to see you. Uh, we are just, you know, less than two weeks out. Incredibly close race. Control the Senate. Uh, it lies in the balance. How are you feeling right now? You know, there is so much energy here. I feel on the ground uh, the same energy that I felt back in 2016 when I ran uh, for U.S. Senate for the first time. Um, I, I just, you know, I'm third generation Nevadan. I get around the state quite often. Uh, I show up in the rural communities. And um, in our urban areas everywhere. And there's a lot of energy uh, on the ground. People are paying attention, number of issues um, that they talk to me about, uh, including the kitchen table issues. And they're, they're coming out. I, I you know, I, I, I just, I, I have to say um, everywhere I go, and, you know, I spend a lot of time um, uh, traveling between Vegas and Reno. And to do that, you have to fly because it's what over, it's about a seven hour drive. Um, and uh, everywhere I go, airports, on the planes, in the grocery stores, at events, people will come up to me uh, and talk about the election and, and show their support. And so that's good to see. And I just, I feel that energy. And we just, now it's just making sure people vote. We, we've got, it's a really focus on is getting and turning out our voters. It's a ground game now. And that's why we're knocking on doors and we're phone banking and uh, we're making sure we're getting into the communities and talking to voters here in Nevada about the importance now of exercising uh, their right to vote. Some very important questions here for you. First, how many members of your family have endorsed Adam Laxalt? <laughs> well, I don't think any that I am aware of. How many members of they? Adam Laxalt's family have endorsed you? <laughs> well, I will say there's about 14 of them because I just called every single one of them to thank them. And, and I was honored to have their support. Yes, it's just notable for the people listening that the people who know Adam Laxalt best are supporting you. Well, listen, I, and let me let me just say this because I, not only am I honored to have their support, uh, of course, but so many across the state, not just Democrats, uh, Republicans have stood with me publicly, uh, nonpartisans. Um, I have the support of so many from our firefighters to. Uh, law enforcement to uh, um, our really organized labor here and so many people. So it, it really uh, has been an honor to, to get that support and see uh, the various diversity of folks coming out that are willing to recognize the work that we've done together here in the state of Nevada and uh, their support for me to continue it. 
One of the big questions that I think will determine how what happens in your state and for Democrats across the country is younger voters. It helped deliver the House in 2018, the White House and the Senate in 2020. In your conversation with, you know, as you're going door to door and talking to folks, what are you hearing from young voters and how you feel about their engagement in this election? Well, and you're right. Young voters are so important. Um, and I will tell you, not as just knocking on doors and talking to them. They're part of my campaign. Uh, and they, we have volunteers that are um, young voters or juniors and seniors in high school, some of them getting ready to vote, but they're engaged and they're, they, they're concerned about their future and um, whether it's environmental justice issues or the cost of education or, you know, in a, in a state um, right now where the main hospitality industry here is the travel and tourism and I'm sure their families, particularly in Southern Nevada, work in that industry, making sure it's strong and robust and we're creating jobs and they have a future and we're leaning in to um, address the climate crisis around um, the drought that we deal with here and and the wildfire. So it is a combination of things. Uh, I will say though, it is it, it really is exciting for me not to just be able to talk to them and show up and have these conversations because I go to our high schools, I go to our college campuses and I talk to people, but they're volunteering. They're coming out to knock on doors on my behalf. They're volunteering and they're talking to their peers and they're talking to other voters uh, about what, what matters to them and rightfully so, right? They should be holding us accountable for their future and protecting that future. And that's why for me, it is important um, to be engaging them, with them all the time. And nationally, the conversation around all of these elections hits on a bunch of issues, inflation and associated economic issues, crime, abortion, the future of democracy. But one issue that I know is very important in your state, it's important nationally, but perhaps maybe even even more so in your state is housing. Can you just for folks, let them know the difference for people who are concerned about the high cost of housing between having you in the Senate and your opponent in the Senate or Democrats in charge of the Senate or Republicans in charge of the Senate? Just what are the, what are the fundamental differences on the housing issue? Yeah. So uh, first of all, most folks don't know, I was born and raised here. I'm third generation. And for me, it is making sure all of our families have the same opportunities that I had growing up, that my family had with support of our community members. Um, and that's why, let me just say, during the last downturn in our economy, you know, every time there's a downturn in the economy, something happens because uh, our revenue base is hospitality and travel, we take a hit. So the last subprime mortgage crisis that we had, I was the attorney general. And too many of our families and individuals and Nevadans were losing their homes. And so that's when I took on the big banks. I remember I took on the big banks and said, no, we're, we're, we're going to fight for our families to keep a roof over their head. We're going to make sure they're treated fairly. And that's when I really went after um, the banks and brought in about almost a billion dollars to just support our families. So do I know how important housing is in the state? Absolutely. Housing to so many families is also health care and, and it's a comfort level for their families and their kids and their future. And so that's why when I got into the Senate, uh, I wanted to be on the Senate Committee of, of Housing uh, and Banking. Because of the work that I had done, I'd known the fight for, for our families, and I wanted to continue that on the Senate Banking Committee and have been able to really focus in our state, uh, uh, building coalitions throughout the state of Nevada about how we address housing at all levels. And it, it, you know, in Nevada, when we talk about affordable housing, it's not just for homelessness. It's not just for low income. It's that first-time home buyer. It's for that, that working family. Uh, that wants that opportunity to own a home. It is for senior housing. It, there's so many things uh, affiliated with it. So my focus has been bringing our coalitions together to focus on all those areas and creating this infrastructure so that when I fight for those federal dollars, that they come into the state of Nevada and help our families. And because of my work, I brought in what $500 million in this state to, to keep families uh, in their homes and help them with rental assistance during the pandemic. Um, and another $600 million that also helped uh, ha uh, families and help us build that affordable housing in the state. So yes, it is an important issue for so many families here um, because I know I know these families. My my my, uh, my family all grew up here and worked in the hospitality industry, and they still do many of them. And it is important for so many families to have a, a roof over their head. So that will always be my fight to make sure they do. There are reports of election workers in your state quitting because of harassment, fears about what could happen on the election. What is your level of confidence in the 
integrity in this election, that the votes will be counted uh, and rightfully attributed here? Well, let me just say a couple of things. One, I know as a former attorney general uh, that our our uh, elections here are safe and secure and there is no wholesale fraud. I mean, I, I can tell you as eight years as the attorney general who was part of a strike force with the secretary of state and FBI every election year that uh, I and we would look for that fraud, whether it was registration or voter fraud. I can count on, on two hands how much there was. And we went after it and prosecuted. And let me just say this, because my opponent. <laughs> Adam Laxalt, the attorney yes. general after me, should know that as well, right? Because he would be part of that election task force. And you can ask him how much wholesale fraud was there when you were attorney general that you were prosecuted, because I don't remember seeing or hearing uh, wholesale fraud during the time that he was attorney general. However, it's very convenient after he steps down and he loses a race for governor in this state. He chairs now, co-chairs Donald Trump's reelection. And when Donald Trump loses, goes around the state claiming that there was election fraud and that it was stolen from Donald Trump. Here's why this is so scary, I think, nationally, but why it's so important for people to understand in Nevada. He, let, he was the face of that big lie in the state of Nevada, my opponent. And he went around claiming that the election was stolen. And he knows better. And he should know better as the former attorney general uh, that there was not wholesale fraud. Because five litigations, right, they challenged it in court. He led that challenge and, and every single court said no. In the state of Nevada, there was no wholesale fraud. Our Republican Secretary of State at the time said no, there was no wholesale fraud. This election was not stolen. Um, and and uh, at the end of the day, he is still peddling these lies. He has gone so far to say that if he loses this election to me, it's because it's stolen and he's going to investigate. But here's the, here's the scary part of all of this. And this is why this is so important for people to really connect the dots. When you're fueling that big lie, that fuels the mob that we saw on January 6th. That uh, the mob that literally overran the Capitol uh, to under the guise, under the misinformation and this big lie that it was somehow stolen and we know it wasn't. And uh, let me just say, people lost their lives that day. Law enforcement was attacked that day. I was there to this day, my opponent who fueled that mob has not condemned what happened there, has not stood up for those law enforcement officers who stood guard, um, and he's still peddling those big lies. It is dangerous for our democracy. It is dangerous for our future. And right now, the strongest thing that I know to do to stand up against it is run against people like this uh, who want to undermine that democracy and call them out because people need to know uh, absolutely who is going to peddle some big lying conspiracy for their own political gain and their own power. And we do not need those people, uh, not just running in Nevada, but across this country. Senator Master, that is a great place to end. But before I let you go, please tell our listeners who want to make sure that you win and this big lie pushing Trumpist does not win. How can they help your campaign in these final days here? Dan, thank you. So uh, we're please, if you want to help us out, and this is a place to do it, you, this, we're, the, these races are always close. Uh, you can come in and help us. This is our ground game now. You can, you can reach out to CatherineCortezMasto.com. You can come in. We'll put you on canvassing and knocking on doors, or we'll put you in phone banking, um, whatever it is. But this is our moment. This is when, this is our strength. We've got to talk to our voters, make sure they know that it is time to get out and vote. Early voting is happening right now, and that will go on until November 4th. So this is our moment to talk to our voters. So if you want to come out and help, CatherineCortezMaster.com, and we'll put you to work. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck out there, and we hope to celebrate your victory in just a couple of weeks. I look forward to it, Dan. Thank you. My guest today is the former Oregon State House Speaker and candidate for Governor Tina Kotek. Tina, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this. Um, let's just start with sort of some some general background on the race. Your campaign, your race is different than most others this year because there is this third party candidate in the mix that's making things kind of complicated. Can you give listeners a bit of a lay of the land about who's running, what's at stake? And um, uh, I'm also interested in where some huge sums of money are uh, is coming from to some of your opponents. Oh, I would be happy to give you the lay of the land. Thanks for the question. So we are unique. Um, we have a term-limited governor. We're, this is the biggest governor's race we've had 
in a long time. And there are three well-funded women running against each other's couple smaller party candidates. But the three of us are former legislators. I was a former speaker. Um, there's a Republican who came out in the primary uh, who is, uh, her name is Christine Drazen. And then there is an unaffiliated candidate. And I say that specifically because in Oregon, there's actually an independent party of Oregon. She's unaffiliated. Mm-hmm. Senator Betsy Johnson, she uh, was a Republican, became a Democrat, was in the legislature for 20 years. And then at the end of last year said, I'm out, don't want to be in the party. I'm going to run as an unaffiliated candidate. And uh, she comes from money, but is also getting a lot of money um, from large special interests, including the founder of Nike, Phil Knight, who I believe ended up giving her about $3 million. And uh, we have no contribution limits here. So you have experience folks with money running against each other. And so it doesn't fit the national narrative. This is really a very unique race with, because of a three-way, um, Oregon could be very purple. Our governor's races are always interesting because they're off cycle, but this is an incredibly unique race. And if I weren't in it, I'm sure I'd love to study it, but it, right now I'm just trying to win. So. Yes. We, we, we want you to win. What, 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 what's wrong with the Nike guy? What, what crawled up his ass and know, died for $4 million? <laughs> well, you know, he's actually into this election cycle in Oregon for about $7 million. He invested, <laughs> oh he invested in the uh, unaffiliated candidate, Bessie Johnson early on, um, along with all kinds of other special interests, like extraction industries, timber, concrete. They're all in for Betsy, right? She raised, she was on TV since March. And then um, he just switched to give a million dollars to the Republican because he knows Betsy can't win. She's now in spoiler category because mm-hmm. she just dropped in the polls. Um, so he's now investing in the Republican, but he's also put a whole bunch of money to try to keep the legislatures, both the House and Senate here in our state legislature from staying in democratic control. He's trying to flip the whole state red. I don't know what his problem is. He has said publicly, he doesn't like me. I've never met him. I don't, mm. you know, whatever. But all I can say is I stand up for working people. I stand up for fairness. I want a fair tax system. So maybe he just doesn't like that. Man, got a real my pillow guy vibe going on. Here. Um, <laughs> exactly. St- stepping back to some broader issues. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've, like, I, I'm not in Oregon. You know, way better than I do. Some of the articles I've read said that uh, voters are concerned about crime, especially in Portland, where there's been an increase in the homicide rate, uh, an increase in drug overdoses. Democrats across the country, regardless of circumstances are getting attacked as soft on crime. I was curious how you're pushing back and if there are any lessons that all Democrats can or should learn from your experience. Well, I think it's important for Democrats to talk about public safety and and keeping our communities safe. Uh, I'm pushing back by saying, look, my record's been very clear. In the state legislature, I supported whatever came into my um, into my world in terms of funding and policy. So uh, for example, making sure our state police have been funded, making sure our crime lab has been funded, you know, really core things that the state runs. You know, policing is mostly a local issue. Um, Mm -hmm. I believe that we need more law enforcement, particularly in Portland, we're very short staffed. I've also supported crisis response. Um, But getting back to the bigger issue, I've never seen the the wrong track, right track numbers so bad in Oregon, right? People are angry. Mm. They have reason to be angry. We just went through two years of hell. Crime is up, livability feels bad. We got people living everywhere on the streets here uh, in our major cities. That has to change. And what I've said to people is, I'm with you. I'm mad. That's why I got in this race. We can fix these problems. We don't have to go down some right wing track that these other two conservative candidates are offering you. That is the wrong direction. You want to fix things? Let's keep our values and fix things. And that's, I think, is the crux of the race right now. Yeah. Um, One interesting thing I noticed was that in 2021, Oregon decriminalized possession of small amounts of a number of drugs, including some hard drugs, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine. Now you basically get fined instead of going to jail. Uh, Oregon also increased access to addiction treatment and other health services associated with that change. Just to like put my personal cards on the table here, I think American drug laws are crazy. Um, They have a racist history. I think that treating addiction like a criminal issue doesn't solve addiction and only leads to mass incarceration. So I like fully support any uh, creative efforts to to change our drug laws. But the challenge is obviously that um, treatment services take a long time to show an impact. Meanwhile, citizens might get frustrated when they see, I don't know, open drug use in cities or, or maybe they just don't feel safe. I'm, I was wondering how you message 
those kinds of policy changes to voters and convince them that there is potentially a long-term benefit even if they're dealing with acute short-term challenges? Very good question. Well, our recent polling is showing that Oregonians support what they did at the ballot in 2020. There was a ballot measure that said, instead of cycling people through jail, let's get them into treatment and also take a good chunk of marijuana revenue, because we have legal recreational Mm -hmm. use here, put it towards addiction uh, treatment programs. And, And they still support that. What they're frustrated with, which I'm frustrated is, the implementation has, has been very bumpy. Um, some people are getting more help. There are more providers, but it's not where it needs to be. I mean, the state took nine months to get the contracts out. Governor Brown, very absent on this topic. We, sh- we should be moving with more urgency. We have a, an absolute, you know, an epidemic on our hands in Oregon and other states as well, right? Meth, fentanyl, it's really bad right now. And we need to make sure people can get into recovery. So my job as governor is to follow the promise that voters wanted when they passed this measure back in 20, make it work. My opponents just want to throw in the towel and say like, we should, you know, send it back to the voters or I'm like, they don't even have the guts to say they want to fix it. They just want to send it back to the voters. Mm -hmm. That's going to take years. And right now people need help. So let's make what we have work. And it does need to be, I think the connection between law enforcement can be stronger where that handoff to a treatment uh, hotline is much more clear and getting people into the services they need. And that is where we should spend our time and energy. That's why I'm, I'm, that's what I'm saying. Voters said, fix it. We're trying to fix it. That's why I want to, you know, go that direction. Yeah. I mean, look, I feel like at this point, everybody knows someone who's had addiction issues or gone through treatment. I mean, I think like we we can find some empathy here for other human beings. Um, The other broader debate you're seeing in politics is how much should Democrats be talking about the economy and inflation versus, you know, the extremism of the Republican Party uh, and specifically Republican efforts to restrict abortion access. Just wondering what arguments resonate when you're on the trail, when you're talking to voters, like what did they come up to you and talk about and what do they want to hear? about? Well, and I've, I've just been on the out on the road uh, on my working families tour because I'm the only candidate that has stood up for our working families for 20 plus years. I got into this work saying, how do we help people put food on the table? How do we reduce their health care costs and their child care costs and their housing costs? So they can have economic stability and self-sufficiency. And my opponents have, you know, the Republican voted against the middle class tax cut. She doesn't she doesn't like any of the housing work to keep people housed. Senator Johnson comes from money. So you see folks that just aren't really in tune with what average Oregonians are dealing with right now. And so I've been talking a lot about that with folks, had some great conversations about childcare costs. So very like digging into like, I'm gonna be on your side. I've worked on these issues. We have to make sure people have what they need. And to the extremism argument, this really does go to where Christine Drazen is. The Republicans like, I have a, I have a new vision or I'm going to bring a new organ or new direction. That is just right to the right. You know, it's like, I want to undo environmental regulations. I want to ban abortion. Um, she's hanging out with folks who went to the January 6th insurrection. She is extreme and wrong for Oregon. She's okay with the QAnon candidate running against U.S. Senator Ron Wyden. She's like, well, you know, she's a Republican. Well, she's showing her cards. This is not Trump country, but that's where she's coming from. So on the Mm -hmm. one hand, it's like, who's going to be with you? And do you really want that? Really? Do you really want that? So, I mean, those are the actual conversations I'm having with people every day now between now and Election Day. So for listeners who maybe haven't been paying attention to this race, they just heard you describe your opponent. That sounds a little scary. They're not uh, necessarily cool with a, um, a sneaker billionaire buying your election or any other. How can they help out? Where should they go? Oh, love the question. Well, um, check out my website, tinafororegon.com. You can volunteer. If you're in Oregon, we have plenty of things for you to do. If you live outside of Oregon, you can still phone bank. Um, if you you know, can send a little money our way, we are still making sure we can communicate with voters uh, to make sure they understand the importance of this race. And because there is a lot at stake. I'm hanging out tonight with some students at uh, Oregon State University. I was just at University of Oregon today. They get it. This is about, will there be a planet 50 years from now? Will they still be able to control their own bodies and their access to healthcare. Um, these are core, core issues for our, our younger voters. And they have been very excited about my race. So I need people to do what they can. Volunteer, sign up, give what you can, tell all your friends. If you have any friends in Oregon, oh my gosh, tell them not to vote for Betsy Johnson. A vote for Betsy Johnson, the unaffiliated candidate, is a vote for the Republican right now. Please don't do that. It's a good note. 
Don't do that. It's too important. Let's not mess around with third-party candidates. We've made that mistake a few times before. Tina Kotek, thank you so much for doing the show. Best of luck out there. I really appreciate it. Thank you. See you on the trail. Take care. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. All right, before we go, we have one more very special guest for you all. Um, in the last couple of weeks, we've talked to Barack Obama, AOC, <laughs> and today, in his first sit-down interview since starring in Taylor Swift's anti-hero video, which has racked up 35 million views in six days, comedian, actor, friend of the pod, Mike Birbiglia, his new Broadway show, The Old Man in the Pool, opens up tomorrow, I think, right? Tomorrow. That's just tomorrow. Breaking news. Breaking news. Mike, welcome back to the pod. Oh my gosh. This is, it's all full circle, you know, because we were together in DC when I was touring this show, Old Man in the Pool. We did the pod there. Uh, and then now it's on Broadway the same week that this, yeah, this mega video came out. And my, me- okay, so here's what I wrote down my message for, for the listeners is uh, the checklist is vote, bring your friends to vote, plan a trip to New York to see the old man in the pool. That's perfect. All right, now, so we are uh, big fans of Taylor Swift at Pod Save America. Uh, Emily Favreau and and Hannah Vitor are super fans, um, to put it mildly. You are now our closest connection to Taylor Swift. Uh, I have have one of her biggest fans here right now. Hi, Mike. Oh my gosh. I, I'm I very away. starstruck to be around you, honestly. Um, I just really need to understand like exactly how this all went down. Okay. First of all, I saw the tweet of your son wearing the sweater that yeah. my character Preston wears in the video. It's a lot to unpack. It's a lot to unpack. John has never loved that sweater. And frankly, I understand. It was sort of a bit I was doing with myself, um, but it was an uncanny resemblance. My only goal is for Charlie not to become a Preston. But anyway. <laughs> I Yeah, I wonder if it's an Emily John Easter egg. Oh, that, oh that my God. Sweater. And I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That would be very uh, But yeah, it was. it's funny because I everything in the in her universe is mega. I've never experienced anything like it. And so it's everything that I say about her or the video or whatever is so amplified that I have to be very precise about what I say. So I'll repeat what she said on Fallon the other night. Smart. <laughs> Honestly, good tactic. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm repeat literally, and this is, this goes into uh, John's field of, of politics, which is like, 
Sometimes do you have to take cues from the people who are the megas in the space and then go, well, if they said it, I can say right. it. Right. That's so, basically what you have to do. You have talking points that have been approved by Taylor Swift. But yeah, and it's only it's only approved just by literally watching it and going, oh, okay, I guess. <laughs> so I guess what you're saying what is I... you're not like on a text chain with her where you're like, hey, I'm going on John Favreau's podcast. And she's like, oh, I know Emily. No. <laughs> That didn't happen. Okay. okay. That definitely didn't. Yeah. But but yeah. so basically we were you know we're so, we know each other. So, uh, we met so, socially a few times uh, through Jack Antonoff, who's like longtime friend. Like I've known for uh, a million years. He did he did the music for my podcast, working it out. He did the music for my last show, the new one, which you guys saw. Like he uh, well, we saw his that. yeah. He, there's a Bleacher song in that at the end and. Uh, and then our my new show, Old Man in the Pool, has a Red Her song, which if you haven't heard his his side project with Soundwave and Sam Dew, oh yeah, who also who also work on a lot of Taylor stuff actually, um, that Red Her's album is astonishingly good. So Jack, so Jack's an old friend, and he introduced me, you know, through Jimmy and 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 um, and Margaret, and uh, at, at, you know, and we yeah, we just hit it off, and then apparently. I learned on Jimmy Fallon's show that's when she cast me for her video. I had no idea. That's so cool. So what <laughs> what was it like working with her? What well, what is she like? Give us I mean I don't know how much you can say, but she is no no, I mean, look, she is obviously in her music she's a visionary. She uh she's executing something entirely singular. I feel like my experience with her as a, a director is the same. It's like she literally like asked me over text like i got you know hey it's taylor and i don't even know if it is like i don't have her number it's just like a, a, a not whatever number i don't someone's number hey it's taylor i'm like okay like i might be, be getting catfished by taylor swift or you know by who you know because she's texting like the script she, i have this i wrote the script and i think that you could be good in the thing and so i'm like it's either taylor swift texting me or um uh, i'm uh, i'm i'm being catfished by an, an excellent writer. Yeah. <laughs> and so either way, I'm going to take a swing for it. And so I just go, I'm in. And then it was all just, I mean, what's funny is like, yeah, everything's just in that universe. Everything's locked down. You know, it's just like totally a secret and like all this stuff. And and uh, it's fun. It's funny because I, I, yeah, at certain points, like I, I as like a gift when I shot it, like they, I, they gave me some like sweatshirts and stuff. Like I had like these like red, like the red tour, like sweatpants. Like, and I was wearing I all them, the red like, tour merch. <laughs> yeah. So like, I was like wearing them at like an exercise uh, uh, class or whatever. And the instructor was like, so did you go to the tour? And I was like, no. And she's like, why do you have the sweatpants? And then I was, well, I don't know. I don't know where these came from. You know, like literally like it was like keeping secrets is not my forte. I'll say that. Emily, if, if Emily got a text from Taylor Swift, you might, you would pass out. I honestly, I can't even have this conversation on the pod because like I'm trying to play it cool in case I ever do meet her. I don't want to be like a super fan. Yeah. So. It is. That is very, very cool. But the Mike Birbiglia, Taylor Swift universe for me and John is really full circle. We should tell that story. Yeah, no, we I need to go watch our child, but Okay, of I'm course, so, of course. I'm so like honored to be in your presence. Can't wait to oh have my. a drink not recorded. <laughs> I can't wait for you to come to New York and see the show so. Emily. Yeah, we have to. We have to. Okay. No, speaking of our child, it's funny because and I've told you this before, we watched the new one for the first time the night that we found out Emily was pregnant, oh which was gosh. a surprise, and I was terrified. And then yes. I watched your show, and it was hilarious, but terrified me even more. <laughs> yeah, the new the new one definitely does both things. It's all it's on Netflix if people haven't seen it, but it's all about how I never wanted to have a child, and then how I had a child, and then I was right, and then I was wrong, and so it so it shows all sides of wanting to have a child versus not wanting to have a child. And holy cow! But John, I got to say, you got a lot of fun in store with when. Una's age seven right now. It's the greatest thing on earth. I mean, Charlie's age two and a couple months right now, and it's amazing. So like, I'm now now I'm, the first yeah. first six months were rough. Now now I'm uh, now I'm totally in. But um that so the night that Emily uh, we found out she was pregnant, we watched you, and then the the night that Emily was in labor with Charlie 
is when Folklore came out. It was just announced oh as a surprise. And so Emily got to listen to it um, when, when Child was born. So like really now, you yes. and Taylor Swift are like the bookends to sort of Charlie's, uh, <laughs> Charlie's the pregnancy this is massive. That, that gave us Charlie. So. Yeah, age seven is unbelievable. It's like she go, the other day she goes, uh, Dad, you have yellow teeth. And I go, well, I'm working on it, you know? <laughs> And then she picks up her cat puppet, cat, Meow Meow. Meow Meow goes, those are the yellowest teeth I've ever seen. And I'm la- now I'm trying not to laugh because it's like, I love that Una's funny, but I don't want her to be an insult comic and a ventriloquist. <laughs> I love that. Well, everyone should go see um, The Old Man in the Pool because you are hilarious. You did our, our DC PSA show. Uh, live and it was I think like one of the all-time funniest segments on Pod Save America oh my ever gosh, ever it was so funny that um, wrestling story the wrestling story I told in the episode is you know, a longer version is in the show actually yeah oh that's perfect all right well everyone yeah. go see that show and um and then uh, put us all on a text chain with Taylor and we'll figure it out from there wait a minute what <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no thanks John and thanks Emily this is so fun thanks Mike take care. All right, that's our show for today. Thanks to Catherine Cortez-Masto, Tina Kotek, and Mike Berbiglia for joining. Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producers are Haley Muse and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineered the show. Thanks to Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Sandy Gerard, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash podsaveamerica. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com podcast25.